You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16. We, we get to finish our study of 1 Corinthians today. There's always something pretty sweet about coming to the end of a study. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And uh, as I was beginning to study, I, I originally planned on doing it in two weeks. And once I started getting to it, I said, oh, this has got to be just one, one, one lovely piece. So we're going to get through all of it today. But I want to remind you that we come to chapter um, 16. You know, something just interesting, too, by the way. You know, we were in these books for a long time, huh? When we launch into a book, we're in it for a while. And I was looking back and counting. We started 1 Corinthians when lockdown started. We were, my, the, I did the intro from my lounge on live stream in April. And I, and I was looking out. Okay, so we've been in, in this technically for a year and almost a half. But some of those weeks were guest speakers. Some of those weeks were holidays. Some of those weeks we did eight weeks of Matthew 24, right? So the actual weeks, I actually looked at it because I do keep a, a record, 49 weeks of study in 1 Corinthians. So some of you might be going, finally it's ending, right? Some of you might be going, no, we want more. Because is it God's word so rich and beautiful? It is so good to get to the end of a book and say, I've, I've studied the whole thing. And it's been such a good study to be in. And we, as we come to the end of chapter, this, this book, I have to remind you that we come out, we have just come out of chapter 15, which has given us a glimpse of eternity, hasn't it? We looked at the new resurrected bodies that we will have, right? New glorified, powerful bodies that cannot be uh, corrupted. And I have to remind you that whenever scripture gives us a glimpse of eternity, it is always, always, always for the purpose of helping us live more faithfully here on earth. And that's what Paul has done here. We go from this heights of chapter 15, looking into eternity, coming down to how does that apply now? I'll give you another example. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter's talking about the coming of the Lord and how the heavens and earth will pass away. He says it a little bit differently. He says, all these things will be dissolved. And when he says, all these things will be dissolved, he says, since that's going to be the case, how does that affect you? He says, what kind of people ought you to be? He asks that question. Basically, he's saying, how does that knowledge, the knowledge that that is the future, how does that inform how you live? And then he answers the question himself in 2 Peter 3, 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. You see, your future, is, your future life is not disconnected from your present one. It's connected. Knowing that my future life in Christ, with Christ in glory does encourage me to live more faithfully here on earth. The reality of the resurrection of Christ and the hope of my own resurrection are what motivate me to live faithfully here on earth. And I think there are a lot of, if you were to ask most Christians, they would, if they believe in the resurrection of Christ, right? That's a doctrinal question. They would say, well, yeah, I believe in the resurrection of Christ. But they don't live as if they do because it should impact how they live. You know what? I think a lot of Christians struggle with uh, diligent, holy living because they lack assurance. We just came from the Truth for Youth conference, and as I mentioned, it's, it's for adults, too. Th this pastor was sitting there taking copious notes the whole time because it's solid biblical teaching. And the first session, right out the gate, was by a man named Daniel Moore, and he spoke on assurance of salvation. And he passed out three little pieces of paper to each and every person in the room. And each paper had the same little thing on it. It had a yes, a no, and a not sure that you could circle, yes, no, or not sure. And he said, I'm going to ask you three questions, and I want you to answer once for each piece of paper for each question. So the first question he said, do you know that you're going to go to heaven? 
Yes, no, we're not sure. And people answered. He would pass them in. They're anonymous. Your name's not on them. Pass them in. Next question. Are you absolutely sure that you're going to go to heaven? Yes, no, we're not sure. Third question was, are you absolutely positively 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt sure that you're going to go to heaven? Yes, no, we're not sure. By the end of the, uh, the, the time we were there, the last day, he revealed the results of the survey. And while the first question, most people were like, oh, yeah. By the time when he pressed people, you saw that the no's and the not sure's came up a little bit more. And it showed that people do question. But there shouldn't be question about our um, salvation. John writes in 1 John 5, 13, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. God's word is written so that we may know we have eternal life. God wants you to know it. So if you believe that Christ has died for your sins, you put your faith in him, you have eternal life, period. That is it. And a true transforming life leads then to holy living. And that's what takes us back to the very, very beginning of this whole uh, series. If you remember, the title, the main title I've had for this has been on the slide for 49 weeks, Live Up to Your Calling. In chapter 1, he said, you are called to be saints. But they weren't acting like it, were they? And the reason, he says, you need to live up to that is because that confirms for you that you are indeed going to heaven. But when we don't live like it, we start to doubt. That doesn't come from God. That comes from us and our own living. So he says, you're called to be saints, so live like saints. And so Paul's point here, after coming out of looking at eternity and, and, and our resurrected bodies, is to bring us out back to the now. And he gives us principles for the living. Not principles for living, but the living. I mean, he's looked at your future life, the, the dead, right? You're going into heaven and having a new body for the living. Those who remain here on earth right now living, how do, we, how do we act? How do we live with the reality of heaven on our minds? And Paul's going to speak into two areas, and these two areas are very interesting. Believers who are assured of heaven are two things. They are giving people, and they are loving people. And so let's read the passage today. We're going to read all 24 verses And then we're going to jump into our study. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us, 
I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part, they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O oh Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. God, we thank you for this wonderful closing chapter in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Lord, we thank you for the principles that are in here. Lord, so many rich little nuggets. And I just pray that your spirit would guide us into the truth that is here. And Lord, that uh, we would be able to apply these to our, our lives. Lord, in light of eternity, how do you want us to live here? Lord, just show us your truth today for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to jump right into this. Point one here. I told you that they're giving people and loving people. Uh, giving people. Giving, meaning even in financially. Yep, I, I just said it. And if you're here for the first time, I've just confirmed your, 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 uh, your belief that all pastors do is get up here and talk about money. Right? Uh, this church can tell you I don't get up here and talk about money. We're not a prosperity gospel-believing church. I don't give weekly sermons about how you cannot outgive God. Uh, we don't run outgive God campaigns or your money back. Yeah, there is one. I've heard of it. And I think the danger with churches like ours, though, however, is that we might be so worried to be, to be associated with gospel prosperity churches or associated with churches that are consumed by money that we, we avoid the topic altogether. We also can't do that. Uh, this church can tell you I don't preach on giving unless it comes up in our passage. And with Paul, Paul speaks about giving more than any New Testament author. And Paul, in this letter, has brought it up two times. This is the second time. Do you remember the last time that he mentioned giving? In fact, well, you actually might be thinking of the gifts, the gift of giving in, in, in chapter 12. And we did look at the gift of giving, but that gift was actually listed in Romans 12. We just looked at all the gifts, didn't we? So we talked about it then, but it wasn't necessarily in this letter. The last time it was mentioned in this letter is back in chapter 9. Back in chapter 9, Paul talked about his right as a pastor to be supported by the church. Do you remember that? And he, he gave up that right because he didn't want anything to hinder the gospel, but he had the right to be paid, and he gave some principles on that. But here now, Paul talks about giving, and in fact, he really gives us some very important principles on it. So I'm going to talk about giving today, because Paul does. So looking at this to begin with, first he gives us the purpose of giving, and this might actually surprise you. Look at verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. Because he says, the collection of the saints, it's very likely that he's referring to something that the Corinthian church already knows something about. The collection of the saints. Remember, from chapter 7 onwards, Paul is answering questions that have been brought to him, right? From a letter from Corinth. So he's been sort of systematically going through this letter and answering all those questions. So it's possible then that, that in this letter, uh, this collection was mentioned because they've been made aware of it, and now they want some further details. So Paul is telling us that he instructed the churches of Galatia to prepare offerings for the saints, and now he's instructing the church in Corinth uh, to do the same. And the Galatian churches, if you remember, it's a region, right? 
So that's the region that Paul first went through on his first missionary journey. Those early churches, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, those are the churches that he's talked to about uh, giving. And so now he's bringing this to the church in Corinth as well. And he says it's the collection is for the saints. What saints? Which saints? Where? Well, in verse 3, it tells us in Jerusalem. Why is the collection needed for the saints in Jerusalem, right? Where is this, where is this going? Well, we know from other parts of Scripture that it was for the poor in Jerusalem. In Romans chapter 15, verse 26, we're told this, For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. Now, Paul makes mention of Macedonia and Achaia there because this is after the fact, okay? Achaia is the area where Corinth is. It's a region, right? And above that, the region of Macedonia, where you would find a church of Philippi, the church of Thessalonica, and supposedly Berea, okay? So he has actually gone to those regions as well and made known that they, uh, they, um, there are poor in Jerusalem and they wanted to make a contribution. So he's been soliciting all of these churches for contributions for the poor all during his second missionary journey. Now, right now, as he writes this letter, he is in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, if you recall. And he does plan to go from Ephesus to collect the gifts and then bring the collection to Jerusalem. Now, why in particular Jerusalem? What has happened there? Don't have time to go into great detail, but if you go back to Acts and you start in, in, in chapter 8 and go on, you might remember that they began to suffer extreme persecution. Paul was even part of that persecution. And so it's interesting that even some of the suffering he's trying to relieve was caused by him way back in chapter 8. Later in chapter 11, you find out that there was a famine that hit the region. So think about what that would do to the churches. That would make it very difficult for the members of those churches. That's one reason. I think there's a secondary reason. Because Paul is a missionary to the who? Gentiles. The church in Jerusalem is largely Jewish. And he is trying to strengthen the spiritual bond between Gentile and Jew. How can you do that through giving? Isn't there something interesting that happens between a giver and a receiver? When you give and receive, there is fellowship that takes place. There's a relationship that is established there. And I think this is the primary purpose. In fact, fellowship is the word koinonia in the Greek, right? And that verse, you see contribution on the line there? That word is koinonia. So Paul is even is using the fellowship word in light of the contribution. He wants them to fellowship with one another. So the point of this is the primary obligation of the believer is to support fellow believers, collectively, but also individually. It's not the only obligation, but it is our primary one. In Galatians 6, 10, we're told this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of the faith. We, we take care of those within the church before we take care of those without. And I think it's a testimony thing. Where you have people suffering within our church, right? And they're poor and homeless, and we're just giving money to other people. What is that going to show us about how we treat family members? What, what kind of person would want to join that family? You see what I'm saying? We take care of the family first, and then we give outwardly. And that was, is what Paul, Paul is doing here. It's a collection for the saints. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, in fact, just turn there because you're probably looking at the start of 2 Corinthians even right now. Go to chapter 8. Paul uh, further talks about this giving from the churches in Macedonia. Chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, 
the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministry to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. You see there, the Macedonians weren't rich. They were poor. They were afflicted, yet they, they implored Paul to take it. Why? Because they wanted to have the fellowship of the ministry to the saints. They wanted to be part of that and not left out of that. So, so this collection was by the saints and for the saints. Our secondary obligation is to minister personally and financially to anyone in need. The parable of the Good Samaritan shows us that. But here we see the primary purpose of giving, and it is to support fellow believers, to support the saints. But now he gets into the principles of giving. And I think you'll find these interesting. Go back to our passage, the principles of giving, beginning in verse 2. The first point is this, that giving should be planned. You should plan to give. Look at what it says in verse 2. On the first day of the week. On the first day of the week. What do we, what do we know about the first day of the week? What happened on the first day of the week? Well, the church met, right? They used to come together in synagogues. They used to meet on Saturday. But, but the new church, right, under the new covenant, began to meet on Sunday, the first day of the week. The risen Jesus appeared to the cowering disciples on the first day of the week when he appeared to them. The early church began meeting on the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So here we see that's the beginning of the church, meeting on the first day. And this passage says the beginning of the week. So it adds further proof to the fact that the church met on Sunday. But it gives us something more important. And I, I think this is, this is amazing. Worship in the early church included the element of giving. Have you ever considered that giving is worship? Maybe for some of you are like, oh, here comes that bag again. You know, here comes that plate. But have you ever considered that it's an act of worship? It certainly was meant to be. On the first day of the week, he says, you should plan it. You see, it's not meant to be an erratic, thoughtless thing. It's not based on emotional appeals. I'm not trying to appeal to you emotionally or your feelings, whatever you feel about it. But on a regular, thankful, sacrificial commitment to give back to God what he first gave to you. That's all it is. I remember at Grace Chapel, my home church in the States, we were considering going to online giving. It was before that was really a thing. And we were looking at church apps and things like that. We presented it to the elder board. What do you guys think about online giving? I remember one of the elders was a little concerned. And, and he said, I just don't want it to remove the element of worship. And I remember hearing that for the first time. And I said, could you explain what you mean? Tell me. He's like, well, there's something about Sunday morning. I have my time with the Lord. And then I bring out my checkbook before I'm at church. And I just love that time with the Lord when I begin to fill it out. I, I go, this, this is what the Lord is directing me to give. For me, he says, it's, it's worship. And I don't want people to miss out on that. And I thought, how beautiful that is for him that is worship. But Paul says it the same way. It is meant to be a planned thing. He's given them on the first day of the week. You know, make that, make that a, a thing. You know, when we had to go to lockdown, we couldn't be here to pass around the back. So we did have a lot of people go to online giving. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, so grateful that people did that. We're not here to say, hey, switch back now, <laughs> right? 
Uh, we've only recently begun to pass the bag around. We've all just had a box uh, back there at the end. But I had to start doing that a few weeks ago because I, I don't want to lose that element of worship. Let me just tell you something. We're not passing that around because we need your money. Because God doesn't need your money. God will always finance his will for his church. And if anyone gets up there and tells you differently, they're lying. <laughs> Where God guides, he provides. We don't need your money. What does God want through your money, though? Your heart. Because let's face it, folks, a lot of times our hearts are tied pretty securely to our pocketbooks, right? And God wants your heart. And so listen, if you already give online and you kind of feel like, oh, you know, like, am I missing out? Listen, whenever you see that transaction come through on your bank statement or whatever, make that your moment. Like, oh, thank you, Lord, that I had the opportunity. You provided that I could give that back. Or if you give online and the bag goes around, maybe that's the moment you think about it. Just make it a worshipful thing for you. But Paul's primary point is this, that it just should be planned. And I think the basis of that is that we don't give God the leftovers. When we first started going to church, that's kind of how we did it, right? In fact, I wouldn't even think about it at all until the plate came around. I went, oh, yeah, uh, and I just gave whatever was in my pocket, which a lot of time was lint. And I, you know, I just <laughs> thought, this is probably not okay, you know? But a lot of times what we'll do is we'll budget, and we'll do all the things, we'll budget all the things we want to do, and then we give God the leftovers. What's left over now? I'll give that to him. That's misordered worship, I think. I think it should be up there with a the priority. Okay, I pay rent, food, shelter, clothing, tithe. It's all going together because it's all God's to begin with. Listen, if you're planning to give, a good biblical principle is found in Proverbs 3, verses 9 to 10. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. We all know what first fruits means now, right? We, we've gone through that, right? Honor the Lord, right? Do it with the first fruits. Give to him um, the first fruits and he'll be faithful to you. So giving should be planned. Secondly, giving should be personal. Look at verse two again. He says, on the first day of the week, let each one of you, let each one of you give something. Now, this is not a command then to only those who are rich, right? To only those who have a lot. No one is excluded. Paul didn't say, oh, except for those people. He says, each one of you, each one of us is expected to exercise good stewardship over whatever God has given us, whether it's a lot or a little. And can I just take a moment to put things in perspective? I'm looking around the room here. Every single one of you in this room is rich. Some agree. Some of you might be like, well, you don't know me. You know my financial circumstance. Let me tell you, you are rich. See, we compare ourselves to the culture we're in. Well, I don't have that house. I don't drive that Mercedes. I'm not rich. You are rich. You need to compare yourself to the majority of the people in the world. We're filthy, stinking rich. Listen, I've seen poor. I've gone to Quito, Ecuador, and I've seen entire families who live in the rubbish tip. And they wait for the, the rubbish truck to come up, and they run out there to be the first family to dig through the refuse to get something to eat or something that's of value. Entire families, communities. It opened my eyes. I left that trip saying, I am a spoiled brat. <laughs> I, am, I am so rich. We are We are rich. Jesus was watching a bunch of people go by the temple treasury and drop money in the back. Did you remember who he highlighted? A little old lady, right? A widow. Two mites she put in. And he was so touched by that, he grabbed the disciples right away. Remember that? And he brought them over. He said, I want you to know what I just saw. I saw a poor widow put in everything she had. She's given more than anyone else put in. Now listen, amount-wise, she didn't put in more, right? There were people who put loads of money in. He said, she put in way more. Why? Because they gave out of their abundance, 
but she gave out of her poverty, everything she had, her whole livelihood. What's he saying? It cost her something. It sacrificed. It wasn't left over. It was all she had. That was his point. Earlier, we looked at Paul, right? Uh, uh, writing to us about the giving church in Macedonia. I put the verse up there. I'm putting it back up to highlight something. Same verse we just looked at a minute ago. 2 Corinthians 8, but just verse 2. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. They gave out of their poverty. They were in great trial. They were in great affliction. But what helped them do that? The abundance of their joy, right? Where's your joy? Who has your heart? You see, they wanted to give. It was a joyful act. One pastor said this, our generosity to the Lord's work is best determined by what we give when we have little. It's true. So how could those people give out of their poverty? If you remember in verse five, it says they gave themselves first to the Lord. So the Lord wants you first, right? Give him your heart first and let him do the rest. He'll begin to do that. We're called to just be giving people, but we can't give without a love for God and for his people. And when we do love God and we do love his people, then giving, generous giving, is inevitable. It begins there. So giving should be personal. Also, and this is very important, giving should be proportional. Look at verse 2 again. Each of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper. Those two phrases, laying something aside, storing up as he may prosper prosper. This is where we get the proportional principle. I've had so many people ask over the years, what is the required amount the believer should give? Have you heard that? Like, what is our tithe? First of all, there's not a, a biblical tithe. The Old Testament Israelites, uh, uh, they had in the Mosaic law, 10% that they had to donate that went to the Levites because the Levites were the ones that operated the tent of meeting it was for their service. So that was to kind of keep the Levites running. Then you had another 10% that's prescribed in Deuteronomy 14, that was given for the feasts and the holidays. It's a national kind of uh, uh, giving. Then you had every third year another 10% that would go to make sure the foreigner, the orphan, the widow were supported. And when you look at all the other little bits of giving and whatnot, in terms of a national, a nation, a theocracy, you're looking at about 23% that they, that they gave. Now, the church today, the New Testament church, corresponds to that of ancient Israel. We give to the government, right? We are taxed by the government. We give a percentage to them. We don't set that, they set it, right? So we, we pay taxes to them and we also give to the Lord. This is set. We know what the government wants tax-wise, but what do we give to the Lord? That's always the question. Well, listen, the New Testament doesn't give us a percentage. We're not given that. We're just told here at a principle, as he may prosper. Now, listen, let me just give you an example. There might be a millionaire in this room. Maybe it's Rob Hall, and he's just hit it really well, okay? So Rob Hall is a millionaire. He's smiling. I knew it. I knew it. He, Rob Hall is a millionaire, and he, he gives 1,000 pounds, right? He gives 1,000 pounds. Someone else in the room is not a millionaire, okay? They have 2,000 pounds to their whole name. That's all they have, everything else. They give 1,000 pounds. Which one's really proportional? See what I'm saying? The person who gave 1,000 but only had two, really, it really cost them something. But for a millionaire to give 1,000, not even to notice it, right? But to make that back on the interest. The point is, it should cost you something, right? There's a great example in 2 Samuel 24. David went to Arunah to buy his threshing floor. He had to offer an oxen on that threshing floor because a plague had gone through the, the people, you know, and it was because of his own sin. And he went to Arunah to say, I want to buy your threshing floor. And he said, no, you can have it, and you can also take these oxen. Let me just give you all this stuff because you're the king. And David had an awesome answer to him. He says, no, I will buy it for you. Uh, from you for a price. 
But also, I'm not going to offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God from something that costs me nothing. Right? I'm not just going to, oh, you gave me that to free. Oh, look, look, God, I give this to you. I got it for free. I'll give it to you. That's re-gifting, isn't it? Don't we do the re-gifting thing? Oh, thank you so much. I'll wrap this up and give it to someone next Christmas, right? That's re-gifting. We do the same thing to God sometimes. David didn't want to do that. He wanted it to cost him something. So giving proportionally means giving according to sacrificially, but also to how you want to receive. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says this, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. How many pastors have you heard read this and say, see, God is going to multiply your material wealth, right? Is that what he's talking about? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, it's the principle that Matthew 6, Jesus gives, right? Lay up for yourself treasures where? In heaven. It's not a promise of material wealth. It speaks of spiritual things. We do it. We give because we want to reap eternal benefits. I got to remember that this is all the Lord's work, right? And I'm talking about souls who I'm going to see in heaven. That's what it's about. It's not that I will be blessed in an earthly way or a material way. However, I will say this. If your heart is right, you will be. Not materially, you'll be blessed. It will be a joy for you to see how the Lord uses you um, and your finances in that way. One other note on the proportional giving got to be from the heart. The very next verse, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, okay? Again, like I said, no one here wants your money. God's going to finance what he wants for his church, but he does want your heart, so per- whatever he's purposed in your heart, give. Don't, don't be compelled. Don't be, do it grudgingly. He wants a cheerfulness, you can have the opposite, can't you? You can have someone here who give loads and loads and loads but not give their heart, right? God doesn't want that either. Let's finish this verse. He says this, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. That word storing is an interesting word. It's thesaurazo. It's where we get the word thesaurus. What's a thesaurus? It's a treasury of words, right? So here he's talking about a collection, a treasury, where this would go into. He's speaking about the church. The church should collect this and store it for him. So that when he comes, he doesn't then have to go solicit people for it and collect. He's, he's being expedient here. When he comes, he wants it all said and done. He doesn't want to be the one going around knocking on people's doors. Collect it, store it up for me, and I will go and I will take it to the church. I think you'll also see, coming up in a minute, there's another reason why he doesn't want to spend his time going around collecting. Because he wants to spend it on better things. One more principle here. Giving should be protected. We see it in verses 3 to 4. When I come, whomever you approve by your letters... I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. This is simply something called being above reproach, okay? Paul was very, very um, uh, careful when it came to money matters. And here he says, basically, that I want various individuals from the congregations to be selected by you to be the ones that will handle the money. And if they're okay with me going along, we'll go together, I'll accompany them, but I don't want to be the one to come to take the money and run. That is smart, right? There's accountability there. We, we implement similar things here, right? We have two people every time that go and count the offering, two. And they both count it together. They verify how much. They both sign it so that we know there's accountability, right? Everything that went in there is the Lord's. We do the best we can with that. And Paul was that way as well. So there's the, 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 the principles there for giving. And I'm done talking about giving. You can get off. Okay, no more. No more condemnation. Here's the really good part. We should be giving people, yeah, but we should be loving people. And that's a broad term. We talk about loving people. But I think that you'll see that there are several characteristics of truly loving Christians. Paul gave us a whole bunch of them 
in 1 Corinthians 13, didn't he? But he gives us some very real practical ones here. I've got seven of them, seven characteristics of loving people here. And look at verses five to seven, and we'll look at these. Now, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. One characteristic here that we see of people who really love others is they will sacrifice for others. The sacrifice for others. Paul's writing this letter near the end of a three-year stay in Ephesus. He wrote the letter, then he gave it to Timothy to deliver, and he planned to follow him shortly after visiting uh, Corinth, both on the way to and from Macedonia. That was his plan. He had to change his plans. It didn't work out that way. He had to visit Corinth later. But just look at his desire here. Look at his heart. It may be that I will remain with you, spend the winter with you. I don't want to see you on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you. Do you see what Paul is offering? He is offering the most valuable commodity you and I have, his time. His time. You think, I think it's a lot easier to just throw money at things or even people sometimes to meet a need. That's just easier, right? They're difficult. I'll just give them money and they'll shut up, right? But you know what I have found over my years in ministry that what people really want is they want your time. They want to know that you care, right? Would you spend time with me? Would you have a conversation with me? Now, you have to think about what Paul is saying here. Think back about what he has written, some hard things. He has said some difficult things to people. There's probably people there that want to beat him up, right? If it were me, I would go, I'd just rather come through, swing by, grab the collection, and go on my way. But Paul says, no, I want to spend time with you. I want to be there. I want to give you care and attention. People who are really loving will give, sacrifice their time. You know what else he was willing to sacrifice? His safety, his comfort, meaning he was willing to suffer. Look what he says in verses 8 to 9. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. What he says, he's going to stay in Ephesus even though he knows there are adversaries. Yeah, that's, that's Paul. Because for Paul, the presence of opposition was a sign that his ministry was actually viable. It encouraged him. It encouraged him to press on and not run away. You know, that meant, it, it, because there were adversaries there, it meant that there was difficulty awaiting him, didn't it? But he was prepared to suffer. He had to be. And listen, that's a sacrifice that all Christians are meant to make. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All of us will. And Paul is willing to make that sacrifice. Why? Notice what it says. Because a great and effective door has opened to me. There's a ministry opportunity here. There's people who, who need to hear the gospel. There's a man who got saved. There's a person who needs be, to be baptized. Here's a person who needs to be encouraged. i got to start a Bible study. He's looking at ministry. He's looking at people. He says, yeah, there's many adversaries here, but a great door is open. I don't know what door. I don't know what had happened there. But listen, he did stay on because he knew there needed to be work that needed to be done. And he knew it would come at a cost. And you know what? When he wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, he told them of the difficulty that he experienced. Do you want to see it? It's pretty harsh. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. He tells us what difficulty came. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that's when he was in Ephesus, 
that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. All right, listen, I've been burdened by ministry, but I don't think I've ever despaired of life. I only despaired of life once, and that was when I was trying to finish the marathon, right? That's when I was like, Lord, take me now. He says, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, who what? Raises the dead. God did that so we would keep our perspective up there, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. He did deliver us, he does, and he will. How do you get that perspective? Because God took him through the difficulties so that he would raise his sights on God. Amazing, right? So he's willing to suffer. People who love people will be willing to suffer for them. And another thing Paul was willing to sacrifice was his plan. Did you notice that little phrase that was tucked in verse 7? If the Lord permits, right? Some of you are real planners. I know this is hard. Like, well, I, I made my plan, right? This is what I expect. And someone's looking at their wife. I'm not going to look this way. Um, no nudging, right? <laughs> but we are. We plan. This is, this is the plan. And we're not going to be flexible on the plan. But he says, listen, you, 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 I do this, and this is what I plan on doing, but if the Lord permits. We have a saying in ministry. It was introduced to us when we first started. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Right? That's it. And every time we would take people on the mission trip, you know what the first session was on training? Be flexible. Because you inevitably had people who thought, this is going to be a great adventure, right? But then they're like, oh, where's my breakfast? And where's this? And where's that? Like, you don't have breakfast today. You know, like, be flexible. We'll get you back in one piece, mostly. Listen, we should make plans. We should be visionaries. We should prepare for the future. Uh, But while we make plans, we understand that it's ultimately God who directs our steps. He might have a different plan. Paul learned that along the way. He wanted to, he went through Fergia and then the region of Galatia. Remember, he wanted to go into Asia, but he says what? The Spirit forbid us. We don't know exactly how, but the Lord said, nope, not now. And then they, from there, they wanted to go to Mycenae and to Bithynia, and again, the Spirit did not permit them. We learn later why. There were people in Europe that needed to hear for the gospel. He went across to Macedonia, but he said he had his plan, but he was flexible, and he did what the Lord wanted, and that's what he says here, if the Lord permits so people who are really loving will be willing to sacrifice their plan if the God is di- guiding them somewhere, somewhere else, right? Well, this is my plan. So that's the first characteristic. Another characteristic of a loving follower of Christ is that they seek the good of others. He seeks the good of others. Look at verses 10 to 11. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I'm waiting for him with the brethren. If you know anything about Timothy, Timothy was one of his first converts in the region of Galatia there. He was a young man, and he was notoriously timid. Um, and so Paul had to write to him to encourage him to not be intimidated that he, the, that he was young. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, let no one despise your youth, Timothy, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Listen, don't let people look down on you because you're young. Instead, just be an example. Be an example in these areas. Now, think about what he's, what he's doing here. The Corinthians were proud, right? They were strong-willed. Uh, there were some of them who were even resisting Paul and his apostolic authority. Yet he's sending Timothy there, timid Timothy, to Corinth with the letter, with this, this letter. Could you imagine? And they open this letter and like, get him, <laughs> right? What's going to happen? And so he's, he's thinking about Timothy. 
Yet Paul is in the middle of Ephesus where great adversaries await him. Do you see this? He's not concerned about himself. He's concerned about Timothy. He seeks the good of others. So Paul writes to them and says, listen, would you welcome him? Right? He, would you protect him? Right? See that no one harms him? Right? That he can be with you without fear? He tends to go to fear. He, I want him to be what, un, you know, unfearing in that time. And why? Because he looked at them as a fellow worker for uh, he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Be hospitable to him. Send him on his, in his journey that he can, he can go and, and join me. Paul's concerned for him. Paul had enough to worry about, but yet he sought the good of others. Do you ever stop long enough in a busy week? Our weeks are so busy, aren't they? But to stop and think about how others are doing specific people in your life. God does that a lot of times, doesn't he? He puts someone on your heart. I wonder how they're doing to prompt you to call them, to prompt you to reach out to them, to seek their good, right? That is so important for us to do because a lot of times it's easier just to focus on our own woes and who we are and where we are and woe is me. And yet, you know what I often find is that takes me out of those doldrums when I'm looking on others. A lot of times you go, oh, Lord, that was so good, not just for them, but for me. Paul sought the good of others. We should too. Another characteristic is that they're sensitive to the Spirit's leading of others. This is very fascinating. Look at verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Do you remember who Apollos was? Apollos was basically the second pastor in Corinth, right? Paul set up that church. He was there for about a year and a half, and then he went to to, to Ephesus. He was only there briefly. He went all the way back home, and then he started his third missionary journey. In that time, he had taken Priscilla and Aquila right over with him to Ephesus. And while Priscilla and Aquila were there, they met this guy, Apollos, and he was a powerful teacher, powerful in the Lord. They taught him more firmly the ways of the Lord. And during that time, Apollos received the call to go over to Corinth. So he ministered in Corinth while Paul was in uh, Ephesus. And you remember the party spirit that rose up in Corinth, a divisive spirit? There were people that began to go, well, I follow Paul. I don't follow this new guy, Apollos. I follow Paul. And there were other people saying, well, I follow Apollos. I don't follow Paul. And there were some people saying, well, I follow Peter. At some point, Peter was there. And then you have the super holy ones that say, well, I follow the Lord, trumped it all. Boom, right? (laughs) So that party spirit had arisen in the church. And probably at this point, Apollos had left, and he's back in Ephesus. And so Paul had to talk to Apollos. Hey, why don't you go back with Timothy? They know you. Maybe you can, you know, encourage them as well. And we don't know why Paul dis- Apollos disagreed. We don't know why he wanted to stay back. Perhaps he thought that divisive issue, the party spirit that had risen, required apostolic authority. Maybe he thought, no, Paul, you're the better one to handle this. Whatever the case, here's what I want you to see, okay? Paul knew that Apollos was a godly man. And that he was listening to the Holy Spirit, and he trusted that. He was sensitive to the Spirit's leading in his life. You know, that is so important. When we first began to get the call, the Holy Spirit leading on our lives to come here. You know, it's, it's an easy thing to say, well, I got to go here because the Spirit told me, the Lord told me. What do you say against that? Like, you have nothing, right? Well, but we had to go to our senior pastor and say, I think the Lord's calling us to Wales, Right? What can he do other than pray about it too, right? But he did. We said, we really feel the Lord leading us this direction. Would you pray about it? Listen, he didn't want to lose us. We were good friends. I'm not saying like we were all that, but I'm saying we, were, we, were, we had grown up in ministry there, right? And we had done ministry together for years. And he had to be sensitive to the spirits leading in our lives, be willing to let us go. 
from my perspective, I thought there's anybody that can step up and fill my shoes, right? There's just so many young men in the church rising up. I thought, you know, I'll hardly be missed, you know, but here there was such a great need. And um, we had to share that with him and get their blessing on it, the elders as well. And that is a hard thing. You have to be sensitive to what the Lord is doing in other people's lives, no matter how much you want to hold on to what's going on, right? Paul was that way as well. Apollos, I think you should go back. No, I don't think it's the right thing. Okay, I trust you with it. I trust you with it. Be sensitive to what the Spirit is doing in others. Another characteristic, he stands watch over others. Look at verses 13 and 14. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. That word, be brave, andridzomai, in your Bibles, you might have the translation that says, um, act like a man. Because the word literally means to show oneself a man. It's not that women can't be brave. That's not the point of that. But that bravery typically was a characteristic of a man. He's saying, listen, this is a time to call, that calls for bravery, for people to stand watch, to be strong, to be diligent, to be fervent. Listen, I think the church today, by and large, thinks they're on a pleasure cruise. <laughs> but listen, this is not a pleasure cruise. This is a battleship. And we have to get believers to see that we're in a spiritual warfare it's not a pleasure cruise at all. There's no swimming pool in the back. It's not an all-you-can-eat buffet, except when Paul, uh, uh, Mark cooks, and then it is. But, but listen, you guys, it's, it's, it's a time of war. It's not a time of peace. The devil has cranked up the machine, right? The battle against the church and against the truth is in full sway. And so we can't have people sleepwalking through it. You have to be standing fast, watchful, brave. It does call for bravery. And let me remind you of the principle that's found in Proverbs 26, 13. The lazy man says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion in the streets. Now, a lion in the road is a danger, isn't it? But the lazy man says, well, it can't do anything. There's danger in the streets. Listen, does danger, is danger meant to prevent the church from doing what the church should be doing? No. That's the principle we've tried to apply all year long, right? This is not a time for us to close shop, Right? This doesn't invoke a spirit of inactivity in believers. It's a call to arms. We need to be fervent in prayer. We need to be coming together. The devil's at work. Let's be at work too. It doesn't call us to inactivity. It's a time to be brave and alert and vigilant and strong. But at the same time, look what he says in verse 14, let all that you be, uh, do be done with love. Paul's talked a lot about love in this, in this whole book, hasn't he? You go back to um, chapter 8. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. The wonderful love chapter of chapter 13, right? Love never fails. When in doubt, love. It never fails you. Chapter 14, pursue love. And then here, let all that you be do, do be done with love. I think this is so important because probably the reputation of those who are brave, right, and strong is to be hard and calloused and insensitive. But he says, no, 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 temper all that, temper it. With love. Let it all be done with love in all things. Jesus said by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, right? Not if, that, if you're strong, <laughs> you're brave. People will know that you love Christ and you follow him if you love one another. One more characteristic here of one who truly is a loving person in Christ serves others. Serves others. Verses uh, 15 to 16, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors 
with us. Do you remember Stephanus? It's way back in chapter one. You'd have to go way back to remember Stephanus. Stephanus was a first fruits of Achaia, meaning he was a first convert. Remember first fruits? The first of more to come? He was the first believer. And he was the first one that Paul baptized. In chapter one, he says, I baptized the household of Stephanus. So that's who Stephanus is. And notice what Stephanus uh, did. They devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. There's that word again. Ministry is diakonia, where we get deacon from, a servant. Okay, They devoted themselves to serving the saints, is what he's saying. Devoted is actually translated in your King James Version, if you have a King James, addicted. They were addicted themselves to service. Like they just couldn't get enough, right? I got to serve people. Listen, I think a lot of times we talk about this with the gifts of giving and service and helps. Many people wait for an official invitation from the church to start using their gifts. I said, don't, right? Just start using it, right? If it's help, start helping people. If it's service, go serve people, right? If it's hospitality, open up your home, be hospitable. Just start doing it. You don't have to wait for the church to say, now, now you may use your gifts. You just do it. And that's what they did. They were just on fire to serve. And this what? They served Paul as well. Look what he says in verses 17 and 18. I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. For what was lacking on your part, they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. See, these men came to Paul from Corinth. They're probably the ones who brought that letter that we've been talking about since chapter 7, right? The letter that Paul's been answering? Stephanus probably brought it with Fortunatus and Achaicus, which are great names, and I think some of you should start naming your kids. Fortunatus. Listen, they became converts, and they instantly recognized that their job was to serve others, and they jumped to it. And the response of the people to whom they serve is actually another mark of one who is loving. Did you notice the word in there? Submit to others. Did you see Paul say that to them? Submit to such acknowledge such. Now, I know we've talked about submission, and it's a bad word. But listen, we all must have a spirit of submission, right? First Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And then he says, Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. It does take humility to submit to others and have a submissive spirit. And I know usually the, the, this rubs women the wrong way because, you know, a lot of times maybe they've got sort of overbearing husbands who are saying, wives, submit, wives, submit, because they've memorized Ephesians 5, 22. And I, can I just say to you, women, if you've been uh, berated by that, uh, that phrase over and over again in an uncaring way, in an overbearing and insensitive way, would you just nicely and gently point your husbands to verse 21, which says, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord? It's a mutual submission. They submit to one another. Listen, that is not a bad word because Christ submitted to the Father. <laughs> and yet he enjoyed fellowship, koinonia, with the Father. And we can too. We can, we can submit. It's an act of love. It is. The final characteristic, one more one, of one who is loving. He sets his sights on the coming of Christ. Hmm. Look at this wonderful conclusion. The churches of Asia greet you, verse 19. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Remember I told you they, they followed them over to Ephesus. And they started up a home church. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Social distancing guidelines have, so we stopped. So we're going to start doing this today after church, holy kisses. 
Just, uh, you ready? Just kidding. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If you go back to chapter one, you might remember we mentioned that Paul gives a greeting from him and from Sosthenes. Many times Paul used an amanuensis, someone that would write for him, why Paul dictated, right? But here Paul is letting us know, I've taken over, I've taken the pen. I'm writing this myself. This is coming from my own hand. Let's look what he wrote. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. In the Greek, when you look this up, there's two Greek words that are side by side there. Let him be accursed is anathema, just one word. O Lord, come, one other word, maranatha. Anathema next to maranatha, side by side. Those who are accursed, those who wait for the Lord. The two groups of humanity. Isn't it interesting that Paul ends by giving us the two groups of humanity because he started there. If you go back to chapter one, he says there are two groups. Humanity, humankind is divided into two, two giant companies, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Do you remember that? And here he gets to the end. He says, these are the same groups. It's those who are accursed and those who wait for the Lord. Uh, uh, anathema, Maranatha. Which group are you in? And we've, we've done a long study, almost a year in Corinthians. And at some point, you've got to come like, am I in a group in which one am I in? Does the Lord have my heart? Do, do I identify as one who waits to see the Lord? It has been said that Christians are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. Have you heard that? But honestly, the opposite is true. We're only of any earthly good, any, because we are heavenly minded. That, that is the reason we have any value here at all. I, I, would, I would have no value if I didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he reigns in heaven, and that I am waiting for him to call me home. Oh, Lord, come. I want you to think about all that Paul has written here as we look into verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Think about everything he's written. Some hard stuff, right? You might have been with us from the beginning of the study. Uh, I think about the Corinthians listening to this letter, and they might get the sense that they're just a lost cause. Right? They're just hopeless, right? You're carnal people, he says. You're unloving. You're insensitive. You're uh, into sexual morality. All these things he's written about. And they might just say, well, we're just a lost cause. Or maybe they've only heard in their head as they've read this, or maybe you've heard the same thing this year. You need to try harder. You need to try harder. Do more. Be more. And if you can't do more and you can't be more, then we don't need you. God doesn't need you. God doesn't love you. That's not what Paul's been saying. I don't want anyone to think that. He ends this book by placing their perspective where it needs to be. And I should let you know, he ends every single epistle this way. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You and I need help. It's grace that brings me into God's family, but he's not done with me then. I need his grace every day. The grace of the Lord be with you. Be with you. I need help. You're going to need help. And that's where God's grace is so valuable. If you look at the standards Paul has laid here and you say, well, that's impossible. I can't do it. Good. Because you can't. Look to Jesus. He's got what you need. It's grace. You're being sanctified and try as hard as you might. You're just not going to be perfect this side of eternity. 
Grace is divine help to overcome our weaknesses. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then I love verse 24. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. I mean, with all that Paul's written too, you could, you know, he's been so stern. They might get the impression that Paul doesn't like them very much as a pastor, right? He reminds them of the opposite. He says, I, I love you. I've had to be harsh. I've had to be stern. I'm reminded that, that God does chasten every son that he loves. Paul has had to take out the stick a few times, right? But he says, listen, listen, <laughs> you need to know that I love you. I love you. And as I read these two verses, I thought, well, this is my, my prayer for you as well. If you've been studying uh, this with us from the beginning, or even if you just joined us today and you're at the very the end of this, this is still my prayer for you, that God's grace would be with you, that you would trust in his divine help to, to make you be more like his son, because you can't do it without his grace. But also that you would know of not only his love for you, but of mine. I love you. Church leadership loves you. We care for you deeply. And I would hate to close this book and have you think that I've been speaking to any individual person. <laughs> that I judge you. I don't. We love you. And God loves you too. Thanks for being on this journey with me. It's such a good book. We've learned so much. I just honestly pray that you're encouraged by it. Encouraged by it. Because, yeah, the standards are high. God wants a lot from his church, but he doesn't ask for us to do it on our own. He gives us his grace. And he gives us his love. You have my love as well. Let me pray. <clears throat> God, I thank you so much for this church. I am thankful for your church, <laughs> your global church, the invisible church, your people all over the world. But Lord, I am particularly thankful for this church, these people here, my brothers and sisters in Christ here in Cardiff. What a joy, what a privilege, what a pleasure it is to be their pastor. I think some of them must be a little whacked out to have me be their pastor, Lord. They have asked me to be here. I'm grateful to be here. And I, I do love them. And I'm thankful for the hunger that they have for your word. We have studied some difficult things. And I don't know where people are. I don't know how some of this is hit or settled with people. I don't know their hearts, but you do. Lord, you know where they are. And I just pray that you would meet them where they are at. Wherever they're at. Lord, your grace is sufficient. And I pray that you would meet them and meet their spiritual needs. Lord, help them to see how much you value them. And that they cannot attain all these things on their own. Because none of it is by works, but it's all by grace. Oh, Lord, would your grace be with this people? Be upon them, and Lord, just overflow your love upon them, that they would know how wide and high and long and deep is your love. Thanks for loving us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. No greater thing to be lovers by dying on the cross for us, which is this next song. So please, church.